Welcome to Mental Healthy, where we share the stories and expertise of professionals working diligently in the field of mental health. I'm your host today, Dr. Kenyon Knapp. I've got another great guest with us today, Dr. Kevin Hull. He's a counseling educator. He works here at Liberty University, but he works with the online division, and he's based in Florida, actually central Florida. He's got a really interesting background. He has a private practice there in Lakeland in between Tampa and Orlando, and he specializes in a number of areas, but one of his specialties is in video games being therapeutic tools. And actually, his dissertation was titled Computer Video Games as Play Therapy Tool in Reducing Emotional Disturbances in Children, which I thought was really cool. (laughs) Welcome to the program, Kevin. It's good to have you. Well, thank you very much, Kenyon. I'm happy to be here and really excited to have this opportunity to talk about this topic. Yeah, well, I appreciate you coming. I tried to give a little introduction of you there. Is there any other things about your background and all? Maybe what led you into this field or how you became excited about working with play therapy and technology? Sure. Well, um, overall, I've been in the field uh, 25 years. I've been a professor for 17. My parents worked in Christian ministry, so I knew I wanted to help people somehow. And my parents had a ministry working with the homeless. And many of the homeless folks who were on the rehabilitation program were in our home each weekend for dinner, Sunday after church or Saturday evening. And I heard their stories and all of them had a theme. And the theme was their childhoods were terrible. They did not have good parenting. Many of them were witness to abuse and experienced abuse. And in my hometown was a children's home here in Lakeland, Florida. And so I was about 22, 23 years old, and I hadn't really decided what I wanted to do yet. And I applied there and got a job. And it was like that first week, it was as if God said, hey, here's what you're going to do for the rest of your life. And so that led me into the counseling field. And from there, got my bachelor's degree finished up and then went into the clinical side at a community mental health center. And that propelled me to get my master's degree, which I did through Liberty and their distance learning program back then. And then it was over 20 years ago, I was part of a special unit at a school. Back then they had these contained classrooms and all of these kids today would probably be diagnosed somewhere on the autism spectrum, but they were labeled emotionally handicapped back then. And a lot of melting down, a lot of anger outbursts. And so one day this young man was all dysregulated emotionally. And so I had taken him on a walk and we went to my little counseling room and I had left my Nintendo Game Boy out on the table and we came in and he grabbed it instantly and turned it on and Super Mario Land was in there. and He started playing that and I was nervous because I didn't want him to go into a rage. But what I was amazed to see as I watched him was he started out playing and he failed and he didn't melt down. He didn't explode. Because he loved the Mario game, he found a way to override the natural response that he normally did with acting out and behavioral meltdown. Because it was fun and enjoyable, he simply tried again. And when he got to that point where he failed, he learned from it, overcame the challenge, and kept going. And I was amazed, and it just kind of hit me 
The other thing that happened was these children had a hard time putting thoughts and feelings into words. And so he was able to talk to me while he played. And then I took the themes from the game, like the enemies, the boss battle, you know, Bowser, the Goombas, all that. And we applied that to scenes in the lunchroom or walking to class or that kid in class that really bothered him. And we talked about strategies and we even acted out some scenes, role play from the themes that came out during the gameplay. So that was the beginning of the whole idea of, wow, this is something that I can use in my counseling and play therapy process. That's really neat. I mean, I love hearing your story too, like from a young age with your parents, you know, saw the need to help people. And then that story with the boy there. And what I'm hearing from you is it was almost like playing the video game was a projective technique. And he was revealing his emotional struggles by what he told you about the game. And maybe even while he was distracted by the game, because sometimes kids don't want to spill their guts. But then if they're being distracted, they'll just go ahead and tell you things if they're playing a game. Very true. And it was around 2000, 2001, that I got my first referral from someone actually diagnosed with Asperger's. That's what it was called back then. You know, now it's autism spectrum or high functioning autism. And so my background was already in child-centered play therapy, which, as you know, has the themes of letting the child lead the play, letting them feel safe and comfortable. And the themes of autism are, you know, very much related to safety. They don't feel safe because of something in the environment. And then the sympathetic nervous system activates. They go into fight, flight, freeze. And from there is a bunch of behaviors that just flow from there. The part of their brain that needs to put the brakes on to take perspective, everything is delayed because of that sympathetic nervous system activation. So this fit really well because so many of those young people loved technology and they would bring their iPad in or they would bring in their game system and it was like a extension of their self. So because I had already had a little bit of experience tapping into all of these themes through video games, it was a really nice fit for autism spectrum work and that's what led me into using technology with that population. Wow, that's really neat. When I hear you talking, it all makes sense what you're saying, but there's sort of this knee-jerk reaction on my part. <laughs> I've got four kids at home. We're going to add a few soon, hopefully with adoption, but we've got four kids at home and my kids, they love video games, like you're saying. And I mean, they could yeah. play Fortnite till the cows come home or other video games. <laughs> right. And the thing is, you know, all that can be fun. But my kids use some of the positive stuff too, like Khan Academy and all that. They, they learn a lot of good things. But it seems like there's this addictive side to the games. I don't know. I just feel myself being torn about video game technology. Some of it might be good and some of it might be bad. And I'm assuming that's a pretty common reaction that people have. How do you pitch the use of games and counseling to counselors and parents, like if they have concerns like me, how do you bring the good in? Very, very good question. I run across this all the time, and I realized early on that I needed to educate parents about this because you're right. Why are games so, I hate to use the word addictive, but appealing is because the theme of growing up and development is very rarely do you feel a sense of control. School is all about being told what to do, what to wear, where to go, how to be, the work you turn in. 
home now, high pressure more than ever on our kids to be a certain way, look a certain way, act a certain way. We've lost the ability of free play in our culture as a whole but also at home. So the gaming world is I'm in the cockpit of control. You know, I'm pulling the levers. I'm pushing the buttons. A game like Minecraft, this open world is mine. And Uh I can play it in creative mode. I can do it in survival mode. I can fly. You know, who doesn't want to fly? And Fortnite, I don't know the people who make Fortnite, but they got to be consulting with PhD folks in developmental psychology because That game is just cartoony enough, but just realistic enough that it has this imaginative piece to it, yet a realistic piece that it's just amazing. So parents are concerned. You know, my kid already, if I don't put limits on him, would play 12, 15 hours a day. In fact, we catch him at night. They stay up too late, blah, blah, blah. And now I'm going to bring them to you for two hours a week, and you're going to be playing games with them. I'm not so sure that's what I want. And so I'll I'll say, okay, let me explain, you know, first of all, it's about connection. If this is the child's, you know, specialized interest, it's a pathway to safety and it's a pathway to relationship and connection. The other piece is the self-expression side. So that's one part of it. And then the other part is I help the parents see that there's themes and metaphors within that specified interest. And I do this with everything. The kid may not be passionate about games. It might be anime. It might be fishing. It might be whatever. I use whatever the child brings as a pathway to understanding them and creating a sense of safety and trust. So I show the parents that the themes in a game, every game has the same themes, overcoming challenges, developing attributes, and achieving goals. And then there's obstacles to the goal. And then usually there's a level system. So you beat a level, and then there's a next level. And some of the themes are the same and some are different. It models exactly what life is like. When the child connects with those themes, suddenly they have a pathway to visualizing an option. Just like in gaming, I can choose to fight the boss directly or I can go around him. A lot of the obstacles in games are choice-based. Some games, there's no getting around that boss battle at the end. You got to do it. But even in that, you know, that could be algebra test or, you know, for my kids who just hate school. I mean, there's no words to describe the level of disdain that a lot of the kids I work with have for school and anything resembling school. But yet we're called upon to be part of the system and learning to flow with the system is a skill that everyone has to have, or you're going to have a tough time in life. So I help parents see that. And then I put this into their hands too, that, you know, learning about the game, understanding the games can be a pathway to the parents communicating with the child, understanding them, and even using principles for discipline and consequences, you know, there's a lot of those make good choices, good things happen in games. But if I'm impulsive and I don't wait and I'm not paying attention, I don't do well. And so I've even used games for kids with, you know, distractibility and ADHD and impulsiveness. I'll set them up on a game they've never played before and they have to pay attention. They have to go slow. And it helps that part of the brain that is delayed because of the overactive sympathetic nervous system. 
that left side planning, organizational narrative part of the brain, they tap into that when they're gaming and it helps override and they can practice controlling that right side of the brain that often just takes off on them. And then they're, you know, melting down. So that's the basic gist that I give to parents. There's a neuroscience explanation. There's a relational explanation. And I'm cautious in sessions. We don't just, you know, go at it for an hour and a half and then, okay, see you next week. There's a time of processing. There's a space for application. There's even a space that I do for when you lost that battle. What was that like for you? What did you feel? You know, I noticed your body got really tense. I'll even hook up a heart rate monitor for certain kids who will melt down and will do some relaxation exercises. They can see on the monitor their heart rate is, you know, nice and calm and relaxed. And then as they're gaming, they're getting frustrated. Hey, look at the meter. Your heart rate just went up to 100 beats a minute. Do some breathing, you know, bring that down. So it's a way to put them in a situation. One of the most productive things that happened as a result of this was I could put a kid in a tense situation and watch how they react, but then walk them through the process of self-regulation. I noticed that a lot of counseling with kids was the parents would bring them in. They had a terrible week. They messed up. They broke blah, 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 you know, meltdown, whatever. And so then I'm put in the position of replaying that with a kid, which destroys their self-worth, makes them feel shame. And we know from neuroscience, when kids are in meltdown mode, memory is not activating. So they're not creating a memory of what am I thinking? What am I feeling? They don't know what happened. But if they're in a game situation and we're doing this together and they can see their heart rate and they can watch themselves get agitated, start to get dysregulated, but then I pause the game, we deregulate, we come back into the green zone like Stephen Porges talks about and we get back into control and then we try again. So what a beautiful space for practical in moment to moment activation of tools, of self-understanding and self-regulation. And gaming has done that. Now, I've got some colleagues who are taking this to a whole new level with virtual reality. Jessica Stone is one of them. I mean, they're putting kids with, you know, virtual reality helmets on and they're playing out scenes. And it's really cool to see how, how technology can put these kids in the moment learn about themselves, and then feel that great sense of, oh my gosh, I can control my breathing. I can control my heart rate. I, my sense of self, is confident and strong now where I used to feel like my body might betray me. Hmm. Wow, that's so cool. I've heard of the military using things like that, the virtual reality for PTSD and stuff like that, but that's neat to hear what Jessica Stone is doing with those kids. I'll date myself a little bit. I'm 51 years old. And I remember when I was a kid, you know, the Atari 2600 came out with Space Invaders and all those games. But my parents used to have this attitude of, you need to go outside and play and go climb a tree or something like that. And But in one of your book chapters, you wrote, the title of the chapter was, I think you said, can electronic gameplay really be actual play and therapeutic? And then in that chapter, you say a resounding yes You've already done this a little bit, but can you sort of explain a little bit of like, what's the difference between just playing a video game versus it being actual play and there being something therapeutic in the process? Yeah, that's a great question. 
the part of the play that makes it therapeutic is connected to the treatment goals. So the main themes, if I'm working with kids on the spectrum, the main themes there, they have a lack of perspective taking. They tend to be, because of that activation of the sympathetic nervous system, it's, they're in a self-preservation mode. So they have a hard time seeing the perspective of others and a different viewpoint of situations. They have trouble with controlling or dealing with negative emotions, so sadness, fear, frustration. And then the development of self is usually delayed because autobiographical memory goes offline when sympathetic nervous system is activated. There's just this delay of sense of self. So those are themes that are often on the treatment plan. And so how this becomes therapeutic is as we're playing, you know, and this is the beauty of being able to pause a game, slow things down. That piece taps into working on those therapy goals that are on the treatment plan. So such as perhaps a kid gets frustrated, and this is why often I'll put them on a game they've never played before, and I'll see the frustration and we'll pause. What does that feel like to you? And then can you think of other situations where you feel just like this? man, yes, when that kid calls me that name, okay, you know, and then we might do a little bit of role play there. So the game opened the door to that sense of feeling. And because it's something the child enjoys, they don't feel triggered in a shutdown way. They feel it, but there's an openness to learn. And those channels of learning in the brain are open because it's a new novel experience, but it's something framed in the context that I know and enjoy. And I've done the same thing with group therapy. I've done groups where all we did was play Minecraft together. And then we had a time of pausing and processing. And so that piece is there because it's connecting to the treatment goals. And when I was a boy, a little bit of self-disclosure I was the youngest in my family by quite a few years. My parents were in full-time Christian ministry. They were very busy, and I had a stutter. My stutter was that type of stuttering where I couldn't even get the sound out. There was so much pressure coming through my vocal region that I couldn't even say anything, and it was a horrifying feeling. I dreaded school. They did a lot of reading in class back then. It was terrifying. And so when a kid tells me he's scared, I don't just imagine, oh, yeah, he must be scared. I remember the shutdown terror and fear of being embarrassed and my body betraying me that I could not trust my body. And one of the things that happened to me was through solitary individual play, I overcame my stutter and through play, I developed this whole other self, this piece of me that today is the professor, the presenter, the writer, that piece of me developed through solitary individual play experiences, which helped me tap into, I am in control. I do have the ability to make choices and make things happen. And I could act that out in play, which strengthened my sense of self. What I've observed in a lot of young people on the spectrum is that they're in a lot of things like ABA and occupational therapy and speech therapy and all these things, which are good, but what's missing is that sense of self. So I get a lot of young adults 
clients on the spectrum who they don't understand who they are and they weren't allowed to be who they wanted to be or who their self, that trajectory of self-development, because they were told that that's not going to work in society. So there's a lot of self-loathing, self-rejection. So another theme that emerged in my work using the video games and the computer game was a reflection of self. You know, when you play a game like Zelda Breath of the Wild, you are playing as Link. You are that self. When you create a character in Minecraft and you're going out into the world, that open world concept, you are a representation of yourself. A researcher named Susan Hader came up with this term, self-representation, and it encompasses self-worth, how I think of myself, how I feel about myself, and then how I value who I am. But then how do I show that self to the world? And so gaming is that piece of you know, and I'm sure you've observed this in your own kids, they might be gaming with someone who's halfway across the world, and yet they're connected, they're together, and they're working towards a common goal. So that self-development piece fits really nicely. I mean, I've had kids, they hated themselves so much, they contemplated suicide on a regular basis. And I tapped into their self in the gaming world is this revered personhood who is somebody who's at the highest level of this game, they are skilled. And I was able to generalize that sense of self to the self that is presented in the real world. And it was a bridge. And so that was another piece that made that applicable. So that made it, you know, therapeutic. And, you know, what we know from neuroscience and how, especially with autism, there's developmental delays because of that constant or often firing of the sympathetic nervous system. There's that delay in the sense itself. There's that delay in emotional control. There's the delay in perspective taking. So it's just a great way to create therapeutic work towards the development of those areas. Yeah, that makes sense. You're making a good case for it because I can totally buy into what you're saying. Like when you had to read in class, the way that produced so much anxiety in you as a kid and caused the stuttering and everything, it makes sense because it's all about performance. And when you're playing, it's not performance, it's just fun. And so if you can sort of bridge therapy with fun instead of performance, it makes total sense. Let me ask you one other concern that people might have sometimes. When the kids play these games, sometimes they do interact with kids from all over the world. But then sometimes people just play games by themselves and they isolate and they'll play a video game for 12 hours straight, not even eat and stuff like that. And sometimes it disconnects them from other real human interaction. How do you deal with that? Like, How do you help people stay connected or maybe use games to become more connected instead of using games to escape from reality and escape from other people? Great, great question. One of the things that I stress with parents is limits uh-huh. and generalization. So as we know, in adult world, I might have a hobby, something I really love and I'm interested in, but you know, I also have to work. I have a family to care for. I have responsibilities. And so 
I have to learn the art of setting that aside, controlling my impulses towards that activity and waiting. So delayed gratification. And so this is where I coach parents on providing limits for whatever it is. Our number one goal as parents is to prepare our kids for life in the real world. And the themes of waiting in line, you know, all the stuff you learn in preschool and kindergarten. Oh, yeah. Wait your turn. Don't interrupt. You know, wait, wait, wait. The, the theme of waiting and delayed gratification is a theme. If you don't learn that, life is going to be tough. So yeah. I coach parents on setting limits. And then, you know, the idea that we have to learn how to engage in society. That's part of what we're called upon to do. So those life skills that connect to that, which even in that, there's themes in games. When you play a game like even Red Dead Redemption, you know, you don't just start off with everything. You've got to build up to it. There's a waiting process. There's a grinding process. And so that's a nice metaphor I use a lot with young adults. I don't want anyone to think I'm playing Red Dead Redemption 2 with, with 10-year-olds. But I get a lot of gamers who are in their 20s, mm -hmm. but they're not making that transition to real life very well. But even in that, when they see those themes in games, they're able to see, and it broadens perspective. I'm big about relationship. My book, Bridge Building for Parents, is all about basically the parent becomes the play therapist. But that means the parent has to get up off the couch. The parent has to put the phone down, turn off the TV. The parent has to model intentional relationship. And so that's part of that limit setting. That's part of those, you know, relationship building. We're, we're in a culture that demands 24-7 entertainment. And this is one of the things that Aldous Huxley was worried about when he wrote Brave New World, that technology would make people their own little god, and no one would know what the truth is, and no one would care. Mm -hmm. And so, Because it'd be on you know, the whole time. Much, yes. <laughs> as much as I'm all about technology, I'm also well aware that it can be something that really causes trouble. I use it to coach parents in relationship and also, you know, finding balance with the young people I work with. And life still has to be lived in and around real people in real situations. And this pandemic has really shown how, you know, for those of us who had to shift everything online, it's doable. But, man, there's still something missing. You know, even though mm -hmm. I can see my colleagues, I'm not with them. Yeah. And, you know, that bothers me. There's a part of my brain that wants to rub shoulders in real time, in real space. It's definitely something we have to be careful of. And, you know, I'm mindful of that as a counselor, that I need to be part of that agent of perspective and preparing them for life as life demands. So technology has to be tamed. Mm -hmm. it, it has to be limited. So. Absolutely. A lot of what you've shared today has been play therapy conceptualized. And I hear a lot of Gary Landreth in, in a lot of the things you say with play therapy. Yeah. But there's such overlap, though, like when I think of behaviorism, like, like when you talk about waiting, and that's part of most of the games, 
that's intermittent reinforcement and all the reinforcement cycles and the way people and animals even learn through reinforcement cycles. I tell you, we're right. getting, we're getting right. at that time in the conversation where I need to wrap it up. But uh, before we go, I mean, I know you're, you're an expert in all this stuff and you mentioned your book. Are there some other resources that listeners could check out about, you know, using technology in a therapeutic way or, or other things in a similar category? Sure. Well, I've written a few books on this topic, the bridge building book, play therapy and Asperger's syndrome, you know, has this theme in it. And those are available on Amazon. But I mentioned Jessica Stone. You can find her on Amazon too. She's a kind of, she's taken this by the reins to take the technology piece, but make it therapeutic. A great book that she's the editor of that I was a part of was Integrating Technology into Modern Therapies. And there's a group of us as authors, but it talks about, you know, using an avatar for instance, the character that a gamer makes and how that is a picture of self and how that can be used therapeutically using virtual reality for PTSD, for self-development, for trauma, for understanding emotions and all kinds of app games. You know, there's tons of games and using those to help one common theme and adults, children, whoever, we are a distracted culture. And so there's pieces of gaming that can be used even to help someone, you know, increase their focus. And so she's a great author who's put together some really great stuff out there. She actually invented the sand tray app for the iPad. So for those of you out there who are school counselors, who work in community mental health, that, you know, you're a play therapist, but you can't drag a sandbox, you know, to five different schools or Many of us working in the pandemic right now, we're doing home visits, you know, and so the virtual sand tray for the iPad is a phenomenal tool. It's just like a sandbox, but it's on the iPad and you can save it. You can take pictures of it. You can, you know, choose from all different styles of toys Uh uh, that can be used in it. It can be used with, you know, kids, adults, whoever. She's a great resource. Well, that sounds neat. And I'm assuming your book mentions some of the different games you would recommend to help with different things. Probably. Yeah, somewhere in there. Um, <laughs> okay. The one that I use the most is Minecraft. The folks at Mojang, they made Minecraft basically for just family and friends. It was this pixelated game. And, you know, a few years ago, Microsoft bought it for $2 billion and wow. just said, keep doing what you're doing. And these folks from over in the Netherlands, I mean, they're just... It's that open world where you can challenge yourself in survival mode, but you can also play creatively, which we know from neuroscience, when we tap into that creative side of ourselves, we increase self-worth and self-understanding. We shift over out of the fear space in the brain to basically things can grow, things can learn. And learning can take place. So Minecraft also, you know, you can play it on the PC. You can play it on the iPad. It allows me to join a kid in a world and we can work together. He can be the leader. I can be the follower. In group therapy, you can set a kid up as a leader and everybody has to follow him. And then you can switch and make a new leader. And so it's just the opportunities are endless using Minecraft. That's one I use a lot. And then, you know, the Mario games, 
Most kids love Mario. The Pokemon games, the theme in Pokemon is leveling up. The idea of evolving, I use that a lot with kids to show that, you know, our self is always evolving. With challenges comes growth. Your kindergarten self wouldn't do too good in fifth grade where you are now. How did you get there? Mm-hmm. You know, well, you learned, you had some challenges, but you grew. And so that's a nice fit. But it's a fun, exciting way to reach these treatment goals through an avenue and with a vehicle that most kids are really in tune with. And that's fun. Yeah. The neat thing about all this, too, is, I mean, everything you're saying can be applied to social work, psychology, marriage and family therapy, counseling. I mean, like there's so many applications and so many people listening today that could apply what you're saying in some way to their work. So that's that's really, really neat. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Hall. I really appreciate it. And uh, let me just a great honor. Oh, well, I appreciate you coming. It's really neat. And let me just remind the listeners, our guest is Dr. Kevin Hull, H-U-L-L. And please look him up on Amazon or other book websites and check out some of his resources. And I'm sure you will have a great experience like I did today learning about all this. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Mental Healthy. Please be sure to subscribe for more episodes and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. You can find this podcast on all your favorite podcast platforms. We hope you join us next time for more on Mental Healthy. Music for this podcast is licensed under Creative Commons by Excel Music Publishing at freemusicpublicdomain.com. Music